Welcome to the Padres Chair, a commentary on real-life issues that can take many of us to a breaking point. Presented by Dr. Tim Schroeder, the Padres Chair provides insight, hope, and encouragement from the perspective of time-proven truths found in the Bible. In this six-episode podcast series titled Insurmountable Odds, Tim addresses the unusual circumstances surrounding COVID-19, economic hardship, racial tension, injustice, and the honest challenge we all face of knowing how to live well and honorably in 2020. Here's Tim. Almost 20 years ago, Stephen Sample, who at the time was the president of the University of Southern California, wrote one of those rare books that had everyone talking. The title pretty much summed up his thesis. He called it The Contrarian's Guide to Leadership. In this bestseller, Sample took 11 commonly held beliefs, beliefs about life and leadership and creativity, and turned them completely upside down. He demonstrated that perspectives that were contrary to those normally held were often much more productive and beneficial than our typical approaches. Sample's thesis in that book is precisely the approach I want to take in this podcast. Here's a for instance. Who of us hasn't, at one time or another, received a group text message suggesting that we need to rally around James or Ashley as they go through a particularly rough time? Perhaps there was a troubling medical diagnosis, a financial setback, a disturbing discovery about a child, a relationship breakup, you you name it. Something bad or difficult happened in their life. And so concern is expressed that they're particularly vulnerable during this difficult period and that caring friends ought to rally around and help them through it. We've all received those kinds of texts on multiple occasions. And... Sensitive, compassionate people take those calls to action seriously and do rally around James or Ashley, helping them cope through their hard times. Most of us consider that to be simply appropriate behavior. On the flip side, I don't think I've ever experienced the reverse scenario. I have never, not even once in my life, received a text suggesting that we rally around James or Ashley because they are flourishing. And they're experiencing a time of great blessing and success. And and as we all know, nothing makes us more vulnerable than success. And so, reads the text, we better draw close to them and help them cope with their season of great prosperity and blessing. That message simply never happens. No one says, hey, Ashley just got promoted with a significant raise. James just got selected for a cover photo shoot because he's so good-looking, and their kids won scholarships and and made varsity teams. We better surround them because success is so dangerous. Now, with those two contrasting scenarios in mind, you can likely guess the contrarian's thesis for this episode. Here it is. Many people can handle anything but success. Which leads to this conclusion. When everything is going well in your life, you want to be very, very careful. 20-plus years ago, I had the opportunity to spend an afternoon with Tony Campolo. 
And as he sat in my office, I, I was full of questions, and, and there was one I was dying to ask him. I said, Tony, man, you travel the world with regularity. You get to see the church everywhere. In your opinion as a sociologist, what's the greatest challenge confronting the church in the days ahead? Like, remember, that was 20-plus years ago. Tony didn't even flinch, didn't blink. He just said immediately, he said, Tim, throughout history, the church has been able to handle pretty much everything except power and prosperity. In seasons of harsh persecution, the church has consistently flourished. But when the church is successful and popular and powerful, it's almost always failed to handle success well. Boy, how I wish he was wrong. And unfortunately, what is so obviously true in the history of the church collectively is true individually for you and me. And it was definitely true for Gideon. And he handled the challenge of Midian superbly. He faced those overwhelming odds and came out on top. And then when he did, he showed he could handle almost anything except victory. And I read the story of Gideon, and I can't believe the ending. For six episodes now, we've studied his life. He was a man chosen by God for a special mission. He was a man who had to overcome an intense sense of personal inadequacy. He was a man who dealt with his doubts and had to learn to trust God. He was a man who did overcome unfathomable odds, a man listed centuries later in Hebrews chapter 11 in what we call the Believer's Hall of Fame. Like, how could this Gideon so screw up in the end? Because many people can handle anything except the good times. And Gideon was one of them. To quote one scholar, it's easier to be honorable in times of crisis than it is in prosperity. Another author, a guy named John Butler, wrote some years back that there are two things about success that make us all incredibly vulnerable to temptation. Euphoria and pride. The sense of euphoria that accompanies a win and, and, and we're flying high and it tends to make us throw caution to the wind. And the sense of pride that sneaks in, that leads us to think that, man, we deserve this and Maybe we're invincible, just a little better than the rest of the pack. He says, when, when those couple of things happen, we put ourselves in unfathomably dangerous situations. Butler also goes on, and he lists what I call, or what he calls, four characteristics of a good temptation. A, a good temptation is popular. It, it appears promising and wonderful. B, it's rewarding. It, it makes you feel like you deserve what it promises. C, it's plausible. In other words, you can easily rationalize it. And D, it's always timely. It catches you when you're most vulnerable. You actually might want to write those four down and, and rehearse them for your own protection. They're popular, rewarding, plausible, and timely. Well, those four factors certainly came together in Gideon's life, and they produced a horrible outcome. And unfortunately, that's what we get to look at for the final chapter of his story. Now, as we, as we take that look, as we study Gideon, I want us to take this approach and consider his story through what I consider to be the, the ultimate practical lens. 
It's the lens that answers the age-old two-word question, so what? If all this is true about Gideon, if all this is true about others, so what? What does that mean for you? What does it mean for me? To answer that, here are three actions you're going to want to take to keep from getting caught in the success trap. Number one, make the effort to really get to know yourself. Spend whatever time it takes to honestly understand your own strengths and weaknesses, your abilities and your vulnerabilities, the the types of temptations that appeal to you and those that have very little allure. You see, although there are patterns to temptation, the, the truth about it is that it's always personally designed just for you and your vulnerability. In the story of Gideon, Judges chapter 8, verse 22, he stood strong at first when they wanted to make him king. The Israelites said to Gideon, I'm reading right from the text now, the Israelites said to Gideon, rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. You know, you read that and, and you think, yay, Gideon, great, great job. He didn't fall for that temptation. Apparently, power wasn't his thing. Now, now, to be true, there are a few hints later that maybe he didn't protest quite as strongly as it appears at first glance. And he was at least a little bit susceptible to power because he named his son Abimelech, which means son of a king, <laughs> But at least initially, he appeared to stand pretty strong. But then, after withstanding that initial temptation, he took a step back and opened the door just a crack. He he says, you know, I'm not going to be your king, but I do have one request. And the moment the insightful reader sees those words, he or she goes, oh no, here it comes. And sure enough, it does. Gideon says, hey, those Ishmaelites you guys defeated, Man, their men wore so much gold jewelry, gold earrings and stuff. He said, boy, if I, if I could just have a little bit of that, even, even one earring from each of you that you took as a spoil of war, that'd be great. And they said, sure. And you might be thinking, here it is. Money is his Achilles heel. Here we got another televangelist in the making. But although he takes the money, it's not about the money. Follow the story. He gets about 70 pounds of pure gold. And he doesn't keep it for himself. Instead, he makes an ephod out of it. Now, let me say right up front that in that era, no one knows precisely what an ephod is. In in some parts of Scripture, it was part of the priestly garment, but that doesn't fit the context here. Neither does the amount of gold that was involved. Rather, it appears that Gideon fashioned some kind of image or object out of the gold which was to be worshipped, which most commentators feel was not even just simple idolatry, but it was somehow connected with sorcery. And if you've been following all the episodes of this podcast series, immediately a bell starts ringing in the back of your mind because you'll remember this Gideon is the guy who kept asking God every step of the way for another sign, another sign, another sign. 
Gideon was continually insecure about what was going to happen to him in the future, and he always wanted a little bit more of an inside scoop. And here he is, even in success, putting up another idolatrous altar, probably connected to sorcery, so that he could have yet one more sign. It got him precisely in the area of his own weakness. What's yours? You have a weak area, you know, and so do I. So how in touch are you with you? How well do you know yourself? How honest are you in self-assessment? How willing are you to have someone reveal your blind spots to you? Up until a year or so ago, I trained for the last dozen years in karate. And I always found it advantageous to spar with martial artists who were more advanced than me because, and this would happen frequently, partway through our sparring, they would call a pause, a timeout, and they would point out to me something I was doing that I was unaware of. Perhaps I would inadvertently telegraph an attack, letting them know what was coming. Or I'd reveal a, a weakness. One of my tendencies is I would typically clench my teeth right before throwing a punch. So every time I clenched my teeth, they knew that I was about to launch an attack and they'd be ready for it. And so since, since they were interested in my development, they took the time to teach me something about me that I couldn't see in myself. You see where I'm going with this? What resources... Which mentors, what exercises help you see the truth about you? Who do you have in your life who loves you enough to tell you the truth about where you're most likely to fall? And the sad reality, the reason I'm calling this a contrarian way of thinking, is because the more successful you are, the higher you go on the totem pole, the fewer people will be honest with you. Because they, they envy you. They think you have it all together if you're successful. They want to flatter you and position themselves to be like you and to experience your successful favor. So in successful times, you got to work even harder to get to the truth about yourself. And let me add, part of this exercise of self-discovery is distinctly spiritual in nature. It was King David who showed what this looks like when he wrote a, a completely different era. He said, search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there's anything wicked in me. Sometimes only God himself can point out what's really going on inside you. So, tactic number one, Make the effort to really get to know yourself. Do whatever it takes to know your vulnerable areas so that you can safeguard against them. Tactic number two, get very realistic about the cost of sin. Do you remember those four characteristics of a good temptation? Almost every one of them makes the wrong choice seem appealing. It's popular, it's plausible, it's rewarding, it comes at just the right moment when you think you can get away with it. Well, you can't. So you want to get very realistic about it and what the cost or price is that accompanies that temptation. 
my generation, and I submit every generation, consistently downplays the high practical cost of sin. Ah, he's just sowing a few wild oats. Oh, she just had a little slip up. Oh, they had a little thing going on the side, or that deal was just a little in the gray area. And we miss and cover and hide and ignore the huge cost and damage that gets incurred by our own poor decisions. Verse 27, Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Ophrah, his town, and all Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and his family. All Israel prostituted themselves. That's some slip up. The guy who'd been charged to lead Israel out of the consequences of their idolatry now caused the whole nation to get right back into it. Wow. I want to exercise some caution in my next comment, because when speaking about something as volatile as COVID-19, any comment somebody makes is ripe for misunderstanding. We often don't know all the facts, uh, some transmission of the virus is truly innocent, and the truth is new understanding of this virus is emerging all the time. But with that disclaimer, One thing this virus has taught us and demonstrated to every one of us is how potent and dangerous just one little droplet can be. In late June and early July in our city, there was one celebration took place that health authorities said was directly responsible for more than a third of all the cases in our region. One party, just one party that led to the Kelowna outbreak involved 149 cases of COVID. The impact of our actions has rarely been more visible than it is today. Now, the the impact of our sin and our poor choices isn't always that obvious, but it's always every bit as real. The path and the damage that accompany it is fully predictable. And so in your moments of euphoria and pride, when you're flying high and think you can get away with something, please remember the cost and damage that always follows the virus called sin. All right, that's tactic number two. Now, this episode would be horribly depressing if we just quit at this point. You know, just talked about how a guy like Gideon could do so much good and then screw up so fatally. So the third and final tactic is essential. Remember, first we said, really get to know yourself. Second, get realistic about the cost of your sin. And third, when you do screw up, rather than cover up, always, always lean into the grace of God. This is the heart of the Christian message. This is the whole core of of the good news that, that we call the gospel. Only God, only God can take an idolater like Gideon and get him included in the Hall of Fame. 
Only God can take an adulterer like David and take him to the place where he gets called a man after God's own heart and is perhaps the greatest king in history and a hero of our faith. Only God can take a a murderer like Saul, turn him into Paul, and make him a defender of the faith who's without equal. Only God can take a foreigner like Ruth and put her into the lineage of Jesus. Only God can take an outcast like the woman at the well and entrust the message of hope with her that impacted and changed her entire village. Only God can take a guy like me or a gal like you and through his grace give us second and third and fourth and fifth new beginnings after we mess up time and time and time again. I I think the single biggest lie ever told, and it's been repeated from the beginning of time, is that God is against us that he's out to get us, and that somehow we need to do something to appease him. That actually is at the heart of almost all religion. And it's just not true. The God of the Bible is always pictured running toward us, hearing our cry, initiating our forgiveness, and extending redemption, which turns our broken pieces into masterpieces. And rather than give in to the tendency to run from him and hide from him and try to cover up before him or even to simply ignore him, the key to life in times of success and failure is to lean into his incredible, amazing grace. When I was a youngster, I learned a nursery rhyme, which I think is one of the saddest ever passed down through the generations. It's a rhyme that is the antithesis of the message of Gideon. It went like this. Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. And all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. In my life, I've reached the conclusion that the author of that nursery rhyme simply had the wrong king. Because our king specializes in making broken people like Humpty and Gideon, like me and like you, completely whole again. I hope you've enjoyed this series from the Padres Chair, featuring the life of Gideon. Check back shortly, because some new episodes on new topics are right around the corner.